Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning, Cross Point, and welcome to our first in-person gathering. Well, first in-person, there was a nine o'clock, okay? And for those of you joining us online, welcome as well. We're so glad you're joining with us this morning in worship. Uh, hey, if you got a Bible handy, well, I'll get you to turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't uh, maybe know where that is in the Bible, it's in the New Testament. Just turn three books to the right, and you'll find yourself in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, hey, this morning we're starting a five-part series about discipleship, and we're going to be exploring what the Bible says about spiritual formation. In other words, what does it mean to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ? So what does it mean to love what he loves, to, to value what he values, to do what he did, to live like he lived? So if you're here this morning uh, in-house or, or online, I want to let you know we, we do have sermon notes because of COVID-19. We're not handing out paper notes, but those are accessible digitally. Uh, you can go on Realm or you just slip onto our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and you'll be able to access them there. And, and this is going to be important because as we go through this series, we're not just going to be teaching, okay? So the church, of course, is not a content delivery system. We are a people who are being transformed more and more to become like Jesus. So in the notes, you're going to find a couple of things. Uh, first of all, you're going to find uh, some reflective questions. So based on what you hear this morning and, and as we read God's word together, uh, we want to encourage you to reflect on that in your own life. And you can do that in community with other people or you could just do it by yourself. So maybe today at lunch, you could take the reflective questions to lunch and have a great conversation. Uh, but also, uh, there are some practices, some exercises that we want to encourage you to consider this week as you think about, well, how do I take today's teaching and put it into practice in my own life? So I hope you'll download those. Hope you'll have a look at those. And of course, home groups, uh, you home group leaders, you know that we are creating a Bible study series around this five mark series, and that's going to be coming out this afternoon for you for week number one. Okay, so this series is going to be framed around what Crosspoint calls the five marks of a disciple. And you might be wondering, what are the five marks? Well, essentially, these are the biblical characteristics of a disciple. And for us, those we would call those to be growth, pursuit, community, service, and mission. So these are like the, the five identifying characteristics of a disciple. And these are like super important for us across my, they're uber important for us. Uh, because here's the thing is, we believe our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. In other words, we want to disciple people because that's what Jesus calls us to do. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. So if that's the great commission, it needs to be our mission as a church. But here's the question, what's a disciple? Right? And there are lots of different definitions out there. So what we've done is we've explored scripture and we've kind of identified five key characteristics, five key themes that we think are important to us in our discipleship journey. And we think they're important for us to strive towards as we seek to become followers of Jesus, as we seek to be formed into his image. So today, our, our conversation is going to be framed around the first mark, which is growth. So what is growth? Well, uh, this is actually the most important mark. It's actually the starting point for becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's foundational. It's fundamental. In fact, without this mark, 
you will struggle to live out the other marks of a disciple. It's that important. So what is growth? What is it? Well, I've got a definition. We're going to put it up on screen here. It means to live a surrendered life under Christ's leadership through obedience and dependence on the Holy Spirit. And what's critical to that definition is the word surrender. Surrender is the key to spiritual transformation. It is the linchpin. In fact, without surrender in our lives, the other marks of a disciple cannot flourish. That's how important it is. Okay, well, that's enough of the series introduction. I want to get into the message today. Uh, And this morning's message, I want to start by just throwing out a provocative statement. Here it is. I think one of the great myths of the church in our day is the belief that discipleship is optional. So what I mean is is that that many Christians will assume is that you can be a believer in Christ and not be a disciple. So, So faith in Jesus is essential, but discipleship under Jesus is optional. Uh, so there, there's this notion that there are two kinds of Christians in the world. I mean, there's those, those who believed in Christ for salvation, but then there are those other Christians who take things a little bit too seriously. It's like their, their, their life has been turned up an extra notch, their religious life. It's like it's not, their amplifier goes up to 11, if you know what I'm saying, okay? Um, but following Jesus, they would say, is, is optional, Right? So Jesus doesn't actually expect that of everybody. You can go for it. That's okay. That's cool. That's really cool with Jesus. But all he requires from us is just plain old belief. So essentially, there's a two-tiered system. Any of you use Spotify? Use Spotify? Yeah, okay, well, one or two, probably more. You just don't like putting up your hands. That's okay. Um, So Spotify, there's like your basic Spotify account, but then there's your premium account right? And if you use the premium account, you don't get the, uh, the uh, advertisements and you get to share it with different devices and all these sorts of things on Spotify premium. But if you want Spotify premium, you have to pay for it, right? So it's a whole nother level of music enjoyment on Spotify premium. Well, often that's how we view uh, our faith in Christ is, is there's basic, there's just like faith and everybody can do that. And then there is premium, but there's a cost but you do get a little bit more. And when I say this is a myth, I'm proposing to you this morning that the Bible doesn't actually make this distinction. That actually what you find in the pages of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, is this. Every believer is a disciple, and every disciple is a believer. And when you put your faith in Christ, what you're actually doing is you are surrendering your life to him, which means you are enlisting yourself to become a follower of Jesus Christ. All right, well, flesh this out this morning. Uh, I'd like to give us some time in, uh, spend some time in Luke chapter 14. And before we dive into the text, let me give you a little bit of background what's going on here. This is, is this taking place during the life of Jesus here on earth? He's doing his public ministry. He has just spent a huge season of time in the south in Judea in a region called Galilee. He's gone about, he's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, he's been standing toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of his day. And because of this, Jesus is like growing in popularity. People's like, wow, who is this guy? He's amazing, right? And so crowds have started to follow him. And these crowds are just growing and growing and growing. But now, there's a, at, at this point, just several chapters prior to Luke chapter 14, Jesus has changed his direction. And he's starting to make his way towards Jerusalem, towards his final end. So uh, at, at, at this point, it, it's interesting is that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes a distinction between different types of people who are following him. He would say that there's the crowd 
who's following him. And these people are just like mostly interested in him. They're curious about him. They kind of want to know what Jesus can do for them. But then there are the disciples, okay? And the disciples are also following him around, but they are a different type of relationship. They are the people who have committed their lives to him. They've kind of entered into this master-disciple relationship. And keep in mind, back in that day, in Jesus' day, there were lots of different types of leaders who had disciples. They had followers who followed after him. But Jesus' discipleship relationship was very, very unique and is very, very different um, because, of course, he was the son of God, although at this time the the disciples didn't fully understand and realize who he was. But anyway... uh, This master-discipleship relationship meant that they were willing to obey Jesus' teachings. It meant that they were willing to follow Jesus wherever he went. And it also meant that they were willing and wanted to model their life after Jesus so that they became more and more like Christ. Um, So also within this larger group of disciples, there were lots of them who followed after Jesus. There was the 12. And the 12 were were Jesus' chosen disciples. 12 disciples who would one day become the apostles of the church. They would one day become the leaders of the church. Sans Judas, without Judas, of course. Um, so it's important to understand this distinction when you read the text today because those t- that kind of dichotomy is going to come up as we read the text. So Luke chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 25. Here's what it says. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Woo! Okay, like, like at first blush, like Jesus is saying some pretty harsh things here, right, when you read them. And, and, and I'm sure that they were as disturbing in that day as they are disturbing in our day. I mean, let, let's pump the hate breaks, Jesus, here. Okay, what's that all about? Hate your family. Hate your own life. Well, obviously, Jesus isn't trying to win a popularity contest here. I mean, it looks like he's out to get himself counseled on social media, right? But Jesus, of course, the best thing about Jesus, well, one of the great things about Jesus is that he was never trying hard to get noticed. Jesus was never trying to fit in. He was never seeking to be admired. He was never seeking to build a platform for himself. So when he says hate, what is Jesus actually talking about here? Well, to be clear, Jesus doesn't actually mean hate in the sense that we understand hate in our day and age. He's not talking about literal hate because that would actually contradict the rest of Jesus' teachings. What does he say? Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, right? So how can you hate and yet love at the same time? What's wrong with you, Jesus, right? Well, what's he doing? He's using hyperbole here. What is hyperbole? Hyperbole is an exaggeration not intending to deceive. So he's stretching things to make a point. In fact, he's using what is called a Semitic idiom. Uh, In Old Testament language, if you read back into the Old Testament, to love one person more than another is described in this way, loving this person and hating another. And actually, you can check this out. If you go to Genesis chapter 29, you read the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, okay? He loves them both, but, but Genesis 29 talks about how he loved one and he hated the other. It doesn't mean he hated them both, it just means he loved one more than the other. And so when Jesus uses the word hate here, what he's saying is you're loving one way more than the other. You're loving one way less than the other. So what he's essentially saying is if you're going to follow him, he has to be your first love. Jesus has to be your first allegiance. So it can't be to family. It can't be to friends. It can't be to your dog or your Volvo or even to yourself. Jesus must be the master above all. 
So to quote Timothy Keller, if Jesus is not Lord of all, Jesus is not Lord at all. So what does this look like? Well, Jesus said that it looks like bearing your own cross and then following him. Now, in our day and age, the cross, I mean, it, it could t- mean so many different things. I mean, for some people, it's a source of comfort. Uh, for, for others, it, it, it's like a, it's a token of faith. Some people use it as a political statement. Uh, for others, it's, it's just a fashion accessory, right? But the image of the cross, I mean, it would have triggered something different in those early listeners. Because here's the thing, they, they had seen Roman uh, crucifixions by the Roman conquerors, right? The cross for them, it meant torture. The cross meant shame. The cross meant horror. It meant a body hanging by nails in the blistering hot heat for several hours until the person suffocated to death, and then the body went cold. That's what a cross meant to them. And in that day and age, the crucified were actually required to carry their cross to their own death. They were dead men walking. Death was literally upon their shoulders. And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is that to be a disciple, your former life needs to be put to death. There's, there's this exchange that needs to take place. That in order to, to receive his life, you need to be willing to abandon your own life. And so if you want to enter into this life-transforming relationship with the resurrected, living Christ, with the Son of God, the only way to get there, the only way to get there, Jesus says, is through death to self. This is why you read a little bit earlier, as Jesus is turning toward Jerusalem, he turns to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, and he says, listen, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to deny himself, he has to take up his cross, and he has to follow after me. So, so the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, it is open to everyone. Anyone can come. But the cost of admission is your very life. See, so here's the thing. Um, Jesus cannot transform your life while you are still in control of your life. He cannot fix your life while you're still holding on to it. He cannot heal your life. He cannot fill your life. As long as you are still clinging to your own life, he cannot take it and make it something powerful and free and extraordinary. True biblical faith includes death to self. Life-transforming faith requires surrender. And, and so belief then is, it's, it's more than this, like this intellectual assent to a bunch of ideas. It's more, it's more than just a nod to God. It, it's more than just a quick and easy mantra to get your ticket to heaven. In, in scripture, faith and repentance actually go hand in hand. Repentance is actually a, a part of faith. This is what John the Baptist would say when he preaches, repent and believe. Because what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from what's killing you. It's turning away from that old way of life. It's turning away from that way of personal uh, self-dependence that's going to draw you away from God. It's turning away from that. And belief is turning to the one who can save you and give you life. Repentance and belief go hand in hand. One is turning away. The other is turning towards. You know, the late Dallas Willard... um, Great author, great thinker. Uh, the Lord took him to be to himself just a couple years ago. But he, he called this barcode faith. And he, he wrote this book called The Great Omission. And uh, if you get a chance to read it, I, I just want to encourage you to read it. But in, in the book, The Great Omission, he, he invites us to imagine that you're going shopping for groceries. 
You know when you go shopping for groceries, you pull up to the till and you got your cart and you're starting to fire things down the conveyor belt. And at the end of the conveyor belt, there's this, this scanner. And what the scanner is going to do is it's going to read the barcode on your grocery items, most of them. I mean, not your produce, obviously, that's going to punch in a code. But otherwise, the scanner is going to read the barcode. Every item you purchase ultimately has a barcode on it. But the scanner's job is just to read the barcode. The scanner does not care what's inside of your grocery item. So if you scan a bottle of Coke, the scanner just picks up, oh, it's a bottle of Coke. It doesn't care if your Coke bottle is empty. It doesn't care if your Coke bottle contains orange juice. That doesn't matter to the scanner. All that matters is, uh, is, is the barcode. So you could take the barcode off of your dog food and you could put it on your pickles and the scanner wouldn't know the difference. It doesn't matter what's going on inside. And what Willard says is the problem in the church in our day is that is that we falsely invite many people into what's called a barcode religion. So we say that all that matters is whether or not you're going to be with Jesus when you die. It doesn't matter what you do in this life. It doesn't matter the condition of your soul. That's of little concern. It doesn't matter where your heart's at or what's happening in your, in your life. All you have to do is say this little prayer, go on having fun, and run your life the way that you want to do it. So you've got your Jesus Club membership, and that's all that matters. And that's what we've reduced faith to, barcode faith, in our modern era. Here's what, here's what Willard says. Here's what he writes. He says, the real question, I think, is whether God would establish a barcode type of arrangement at all. It is we who are in danger, in danger of missing the fullness of the life offered to us. I mean, can we seriously believe that God would establish a plan for us that essentially bypasses the awesome needs of present human life, and leaves human character untouched? Would he leave us even temporarily marooned with no health in our kind of world, with our kinds of problems, psychological, emotional, social, and global? Can we believe that the essence of Christian faith and salvation covers nothing but death and after? Can we believe that being saved really has nothing whatever to do with the kinds of persons we are? Jesus invites us into a transformed life, not into a barcode life. And he wants to change us. He wants to truly transform us from the inside out so that we become more and more like him, so that we are people who are restored through Jesus Christ, but also we are people who are being used by him in his restoration project in the world. Now, I, I realize, I mean, in the day and age in which we live in, that this, this kind of idea, this idea of death to self, it can almost feel like a two-by-four in the side of the head. And this is especially true in the culture in which we live, because we live in a culture that, that almost worships personal freedom and self-autonomy. Do you know that the death to self may, in fact, be one of the most countercultural things a person can do in our day and age? Dying to self is, is completely subversive to our current cultural narratives of self-indulgence, of self-autonomy, of self-identity, and of self-sufficiency. Death to self is radical in our day and age. And yet Jesus taught that death to self can be the truest, the most liberating, and the most life-giving choice that you will ever make. So let's keep reading. Here's what it says. Uh, verse, uh, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Cue the Simpsons. Ah. 
okay. So, so Jesus tells this parable, and, and he's trying to make a point here about counting the cost, right? Uh, so, so let me show you a picture. We're going to put a picture up on screen here. Uh, you see that tall building in the middle there, the tallest building? That is the Stantec Tower. This is a 66-story skyscraper in the middle of Edmonton. It's 197 meters tall. It is not only the tallest building in Edmonton, it is the tallest building in Canada outside of Toronto. It's actually won some international awards for the way that it was designed. And it, it took them five years to build it. It started in 2014, ended in 2019. Do you know how much it cost them? $500 million to build that tower. Half a billion dollars. Fat stacks. Now, here's the question. How do you think they decided to build it? You know, they just like got some permits, showed up one day with a cement truck, and they're like, I don't know, let's just start parting some stuff here, right? Oh, I add some girders, you know, and it just kind of kept going, and, and when the money ran out, they just kind of stopped. No, absolutely not. They sat down and they asked the question. They did the math. They says, what is it going to cost to build this thing? And do we have what it takes to build it? They did their research. I mean, that was, if the tower was too expensive, if they weren't going to have the money to build it, or if it wasn't going to be profitable at the end of the day, they never would have built the thing. But before they built this immense tower in the city of Edmonton, they sat down and they thought it through. And Jesus says that anyone who sets out to build a tower, but he can't finish it, is a fool. A wise builder, a wise builder of your life will always sit down and count the cost. But then Jesus tells another parable. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So here's a question. What is the greatest military power, the nation with the greatest military power in the world today? Anyone know? So the United States of America. In case you didn't know that, it's true. The United States. Uh, anybody know what the United States annual military budget is? $700 billion a year. That is 1,400 Stantec Towers. It's actually three times what the second greatest military power in the world pays, which is China. Three times greater than what China has. The U.S. spends as much on its military in a year as eight of the other 10 top nations combined. 37% of the world's military spending every year is spent by the United States of America to the South. So, there is probably a reason why a lot of nations in the world will not confront the United States. There is a lot of reasons why a lot of them do not want to go to war with the U.S. They've sat down. They've done the math. And they thought... Yeah, I don't know if it's really worth it. Jesus said that before he goes to war, a wise king will sit down and he'll deliberate. He'll think it through. And he'll ask the question, is this a fight I can win? And if not, what will he do? He will sue for peace. He'll do whatever he can to stop the war because the cost is just too high. Now, the point that Jesus is making in these two parables is actually rather simple. He's saying, before you decide to follow me, sit down, consider the cost. And each of the parables invites us to do this, but it actually invites us to do this in a different way. 
The first parable asks the question, can you afford to build this? The second parable asks the question, can you afford to refuse this? You know, I I often wonder if um, we fail to ask people to consider the cost before we invite them to follow Jesus. I I wonder if we're, we're so quick to tell them about the free gift of salvation that we forget to tell them about the cost. So we might encourage them and hurry them into saying a quick prayer or, or hurry them into some form of a confession. But sometimes it's not actually clear to them what they're actually signing up for. And, and the tragedy is, is that later on they find out and they discover, oh, well, Jesus actually wants to be in charge of my life. And they're shocked and surprised that, hey, well, Jesus actually cares about how I spend my money and he cares about how I treat other people and he, and he cares about what I do with my sexuality and he actually cares about whether or not I care for the poor. Jesus actually wants to get into the driver's seat of my life and take the wheel? What's that all about, right? And, and sometimes later on in their journey, they actually walk away because they discover that the price is too high. Or sometimes they get frustrated and they ask the question, why did you not tell me this from the beginning? And, and I, I got to tell you, listen, I'm ashamed to admit that I have, there have been times in the past that I have done this, as, I, as I, I have not preached the full gospel. I have not told the whole story. I have not invited them to sit down and to consider the cost. But it's interesting. I mean, you read the story. It's, it's really interesting how upfront Jesus was with this. Because who's he talking to in the story? He's not talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the insiders. Who's he addressing? He's addressing the crowd. And he's clear and he's direct. He's not trying to soft sell the message. He's not doing a bait and switch here. There's no switcheroo here. There's no sleight of hand. Way before they sign up, Jesus says to them, listen, you need to sit down and you need to consider the cost of being my follower. Because here's the thing. Following Jesus is not cheap. Discipleship is not free. There is a cost to discipleship. So it it is not a bargain basement deal. It's not a Black Friday or Cyber Monday special. Jesus said, to be a disciple, you actually have to renounce all that you have. Now, that word renounce can be a little scary to some of us, because it's like, renounce? Does that mean like i got to sell all my stuff and give it away to Jesus and then give it away to the poor? Is that what? Well, maybe, but that's not necessarily so. That's not exactly what he means here. He's not talking about giving it away. He's talking about giving up control. Giving up control means that you're willing to transfer ownership of every part of your life to Jesus. It means to follow Jesus no matter what it costs you. And discipleship is costly. And let me tell you, nobody understood this more than Jesus. Nobody understood the cost of obedience to God. See, remember, in this story, when Jesus challenges the crowd, where is he? What's he doing? He is on his way to Jerusalem. His time on earth is drawing to a close. The cross was on the near horizon. He would soon carry his own cross. He would soon give up his life as a ransom for many. His free gift of salvation would be purchased with his own special precious blood. It was free, but it was not cheap. You know, a man, I think, who truly understood this difference between cheap and costly grace was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you might not know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, so let me tell you who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. Uh, He was a young German pastor theologian who lived during the time of the Nazi regime in Germany. There was a point where Hitler took control of the national church in Germany. 
as his party was building and gaining power. And uh, he corruptly took control of the national church. And you've got to believe that there were Christians who were dissenters because uh, they didn't want uh, Hitler to do that because what he began to do is to eliminate the teachings of Jesus and fill the church with Nazi propaganda. So uh, Bonhoeffer, of course, opposed Jesus publicly, which is probably not a great thing to do is to stand up to Hitler in public. I mean, Hitler puts the cancel in cancel culture. I mean, he literally will cancel you if you stand up against him, right? So what Bonhoeffer did after publicly opposing him is he, he formed a new church. It was called the Confessing Church. And he actually created an underground seminary to start training workers for uh, Christian work in Germany at that time. Because what they were trying to do is they were trying to preserve biblical beliefs and practices rather than Nazi propaganda, and here's the most amazing thing about this. I find this most fascinating about his story. Bonhoeffer was only 29 years old when he was doing this. I mean, what were you doing when you were 29 years old? I mean, you aren't even 29 years old. Hey, there's still hope for you. Okay, but as he was doing this at 29 years old, that's amazing to me. And it was during this time that he published his great work, which is called The Cost of Discipleship. If you get a chance, read The Cost of Discipleship, you're welcome, okay? Because this is a modern Christian classic when you read this book. It will rivet you if you take the time. But in the cost of discipleship, he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And so I, I just want to share a bit about what he wrote. Here's what he says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. And for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's a pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. That's the kingly rule of Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. And it's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man not the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Here's the thing about the Bonhoeffer. He not only taught and wrote about costly discipleship. He ultimately lived it. I mean, he was dogged by the Nazi party at every turn. He was threatened, he was rest, arrested, he was questioned. Eventually, he was forbidden to write and to, pe uh, to speak in public. And then the last two years of his life, he was thrown into a concentration camp where he lived. And he continued his work discipling people. And in his final days, Hitler ordered his execution. And he was taken out, he was stripped naked, and he was hanged to death. So he understood costly discipleship. You know, when, when I became a Christ follower, it, it actually took me months to, to make the decision when I understood what it was really all about. Um, I had to consider the cost. I was like 18 years old. Um, I'm not from a Christian background, Christian home or whatnot. I was just reading the New Testament because I, th I thought that was important for me and I was seeking. And, and I read the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus and I eventually found my way to, to, to Luke 9. And I, and I read the words that Jesus said. It says, What is the profit of man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? 
And if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross and follow after me. What can you give in exchange for your whole, whole soul? And, and, and it was pretty clear to me back then, to my 18-year-old brain, what Jesus was actually asking me to do. And for me, I had to wrestle with it. I couldn't just make this decision because here's the thing. I loved my life. I liked me. I liked what I was doing. I had plans and aspirations and goals. I was, I was going places, right? And, 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 and if I follow Jesus, does that mean he's going to disrupt my life, radically disrupt my life? Does that mean I have to give up maybe some of my goals and my dreams or my aspirations? If I followed Jesus with everything, would I lose or would I gain? Well, finally, after months of wrestling, Jesus got my attention for the, through this very miraculous divine moment, and I, I don't have the time to talk about it. But when I got to that moment and, and I discovered that God was truly real and he was truly tapping on the door of my life, I came to a crossroads. And I knew that I had to make a decision. And so at that crossroads, I just simply weighed up my life. I weighed my life out, and I, I looked at my length of my life versus the, the, the length of eternity, right? I weighed the, the benefits of following Jesus against the cost of following Jesus. And, and that night when I weighed those, those things out, I said to myself, you fool. You fool. Why would you not follow Christ with everything? Why would you not surrender your life to him? And so that very night, I did. I did that. I gave my life to him. And I, since that day, I have not looked back, and I have never regretted that decision. Was, has it been hard? Yes. Has there been difficulty? Absolutely. Has there been sacrifice? Absolutely. But to the end of the day, it has been worth it. Worth it. And so, friends, the invitation to follow Jesus is available to each and every one of us every single day. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus invites each and every one of us into a master-disciple relationship. He invites us each to come and to be formed and transformed by him. And he offers to us his very self. He offers to us the gift of life, abundant life, transforming life in a relationship. But the catalyst, the doorway to all of this is a life of surrender. To take up your cross, to die to self, to lay your life at his feet and say, Jesus, I am yours. And this is what faith in Christ looks like. It's turning away from your old broken patterns of life and turning to the one who can give you life. There's no other way towards spiritual transformation. God can only do in you what you are willing to allow him to do in you. But let me just say this, before diving in, before making that decision, consider the cost. His grace was costly. Following him is also costly. And the question Jesus asks, and he's asking each of us every single day and today, are you willing to pay the price? And we want to invite you to do that this morning. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you and we worship you for your obedience to the Father. And we thank you that you've gone before us and you've demonstrated to us what this life might look like. And you've shown us what it means to, to live a life of transformation. And so Jesus, we just want to pause before you this morning and reflect again on what that would mean for us. What is it that you're asking each and every one of us to do this morning? Just take a moment and sit in the presence of God.
Jesus, create in us the desire and the will to follow you wholeheartedly with glad obedience today. We thank you that you are faithful and you will do it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.